invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew 25. I got a little nervous this morning in Sunday school as Tim said, let's open to Matthew 25 for Sunday school. I thought, okay, I better pay attention so I know what I'm supposed to say. And then every, almost every single other verse that you had us turn to are in my notes. So um, you should have come this morning, and then you could have had a better understanding where we're going this, at this time, but uh, I think you'll, you'll be fine either way. Matthew 25 is the continuation of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We've been working through this for some weeks now. This morning, we break into 25 and come across uh, three final parables or three final sections of Jesus' Olivet Discourse that teaches us one big truth of being ready. Uh, The last few Sundays, I've been trying to categorize them all as uh, be ready by something this morning, uh, just because it uh, stuck in my brain. The title is, Here Comes the Bridegroom. But you can also say, be prepared or be ready by waiting wisely. Let's read the words of God and then take our time to work through them in in what we have together. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say unto you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, we are all waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. It's not just a Christian thing to wait for Christ. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you are waiting for him to come back. Some of us are aware of the return of Christ, what that means, and desire to be, and I believe are, fully prepared, as we have seen what preparation means from these parables. We are eagerly anticipating an event which we don't know when will be or will not expect. There are others, however, who are unaware and will be very surprised when Jesus comes and, as a result, 
will be completely unprepared. But I think the saddest of all is a group of people that we see in this parable. These are people that are somewhat aware of what is coming, and yet for some reason are still unprepared. They know it's coming. They're even waiting intentionally, but totally unprepared. It's sad because they don't know that they're not ready. They're waiting with everybody else, but are totally unprepared. Now, in the last few uh, sections, Jesus has been teaching his followers, the disciples, who would then pass it on to the church, which would trickle down to us. He teaches the disciples that they must be prepared for his return. That's the main truth. Be ready. Be prepared because I'm coming. Uh, scholar Don Carson uh, summarizes it for us the last few parables. He says that the first parable warns of the unexpectedness of Messiah's coming. The second, which is what we looked at last week, shows us more, that more than passive watchfulness is required. There must be behavior acceptable to the master discharge of allotted responsibilities. We're supposed to be faithful. And the third parable, the one that we have first today, stresses the need for preparedness in the face of an unexpectedly long delay. Kind of saw that in the last parable, the aspect of delay. We see that even more clearly in the parable of chapter 25, the delay of the coming of Christ thing about delays is even though you may know that a delay is coming, you don't always know how long the delay is going to last. And in the delay, while we wait, it can be a dangerous time because we may forget what it was we were waiting for. You've ever been there? You, you, well, some of us just forget why we walked into the room 10 seconds ago. Some of us uh, will just not maybe intentionally forget, but just as time goes on, the purpose, the focus of what we were doing in the first place fades. The imminence fades. The urgency fades. And we forget what we were doing in the first place. We also can just be distracted while we pass the time, forgetting what it was that we were supposed to be doing. Or to borrow the words that Jesus uses here, the term sleepy. We can just get sleepy and drowsy and fall asleep while we're waiting. Imagine, if you will, that you make your way to the airport this afternoon. I guess Erie is the closest one. Buffalo, Cleveland, wherever you're going to end up. You get to the gate. And you find out that your 3 p.m. departure has been delayed. Have you ever been there? And even more so nowadays, uh, delays and even cancellations are, are a, a more common thing. So you are sitting at the gate and you hear the news. You are not getting on that plane at your scheduled time. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you may handle it similar to this. Maybe you just you don't even react. You just sit there. You play on your phone, you're reading your book, you're eating your snacks, whatever you're doing, 
but as the, the delay lasts, as it goes on, you feel a little bit more freedom to get up and move around, maybe even move away from the gate just a little bit, maybe to go get a snack, maybe to uh, browse through the bookstore. You're just finding some way to pass the time. You're looking at all of those shops that I can't believe anybody actually buys anything from. You ever, you ever look at all the shops in the airport and think, who shops here? Is way too expensive, and who is looking for a framed, uh, you know, twenty by twenty picture right before they're going to get on an airplane? But they're there, and I wonder sometimes if it's not just to keep us busy. Now imagine that the delay just continues, and there's been no announcement. You've been listening, you've been paying attention, and even thought I might be able to get away with taking a quick nap. I'll be awake enough that I'll hear an announcement. I won't miss the delay. Imagine the delay even lasts longer than that and now into the night. And instead of just running to the little gift shop right next door to your gate, you sit down at one of the restaurants at the far end because that's where the nice ones are. You know it's been so long now, you still have plenty of time. You sit down at the restaurant You've visited all the shops. You've ridden all the escalators and moving walkways. You looked at all the pictures on the walls. You've done everything that can be done in the airport, and the delay continues to go on. Finally, you hear the announcement. The plane has, has arrived at the gate, and now we can start the boarding process. Thank you for your patience. We'll have you on your way just as soon as possible. So you get in line, you make your way to the ticket person there. At that moment, you realize the one most important thing you should have done, you have not done. You don't have a ticket. Now, I know you can't do that nowadays. You're not getting, you're not getting out of your car without a ticket, right? But in days past, you used to be able to walk right up. Do you remember being able to go all the way to the, to the, I mean, even getting on the plane? I remember watching TV as a kid, and you would go and, they'd just go and sit on the plane and talk to their buddy while their buddy was going to leave, and then they just had to get off in time. Can you imagine all of that waiting and not having a ticket? And so when the plane leaves, you're not going. No matter how badly you wanted to go, no matter how long you patiently waited, you don't have a ticket. You're not flying anywhere. You waited with everyone else, and it looked like you were one of the few who would get on that plane, and yet, when all is said and done, that plane is going to leave you in the gate, stranded. And just as the coming of Jesus is clear and inevitable, the delay of Jesus is clear. And the delay is inevitable. There's nothing we can do to prolong it. There's nothing we can do to speed up the delay of Christ. But here's what we're supposed to be learning as we study these passages. What we do during the waiting process is of the utmost importance. You and I did not decide that Jesus was coming back or when Jesus was coming back. Jesus is not taking a vote, trying to figure out when he can work it into his schedule to finally come. 
So though it is, we call it a delay, it truly is not a delay from Christ's perspective. It has been determined by the Father, we just don't know when, and it seems like it should have happened a lot longer ago, and it hasn't, so that's why we call it a delay. But here's what I want you to understand from this passage. Not all who are waiting for Christ's return are ready for it. What does readiness mean? Well, we've seen previously that readiness means staying awake. For the thief to break in, you know he's coming. You're going to stay awake. We saw last Sunday that readiness or preparedness means being faithful, being obedient, doing what you were left in charge to do. This morning, being ready, being faithful means possessing faith, not merely professing it. And I want to listen, I want you to listen to the parable that Jesus gives here with special attention to the most important character, not the virgins, the bridegroom. And this reads a little bit like a script, and so we're going to try to work through it like that. So, scene one, waiting for the bridegroom. That's verses one through four. Kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's what they want to do. They went to the place where they needed to be so that when the bridegroom came, they would meet him. They're waiting there. We notice right away in verse number one that there are these ten women. The use of the word virgin here, I don't think we want to press too deeply into that, but simply they are unmarried women. These are, these are possibly friends of the bride. We don't really know much about them, but what we do know is very clear. They're waiting for the wedding. Specifically, they're waiting for the wedding feast. We're not just talking about cake. We're talking about the whole shebang. They want to be a part of this thing. The weddings in these days were very big deals, very extravagant, could even last up to a week. In those days, the wedding, the groom, I mean, there's, there's several different aspects of a wedding, but the, the aspect that we're seeing take place here, that the groom would make his way with his friends to the bride's house, where there would be various ceremonies that would, that would take place. And then at some point, late into the night, they would make a long and loud procession through the streets back home to the groom's house, where they started the party. And it was a joyous thing to not only go to the party, but to be a part of the procession. But to be a part of the parade, you needed to have a lamp. A lamp showed who belonged and who did not. If you were to show up at the parade without a lamp, it showed that you were a party crasher or a thief in some, of some sort. You didn't belong. I hope no one knows what, it, what it's like to crash a wedding. But I think we all understand those are unwelcome people. But all you needed was a lamp. And it showed that you belonged. From verse number one, it seems that all of these women are pretty much alike. Notice, they're the same kind of woman. They're all virgin. They have the same purpose. To meet the bridegroom. They have the same desire to go to the wedding feast. And they all have a lamp. That's great. And so we are waiting for the bridegroom. 
Now, the narrator, Jesus, tells us something that's important that's going to play a big part in the rest of how this story plays out. But if we were putting ourselves into that situation, this is a detail that we would not know quite yet. Some of them don't have oil. Why is that a big deal? Well, we will find out. As scene one closes, we have ten women excitedly waiting to meet the bridegroom. Scene number two, more waiting for the bridegroom. For some reason that is not told to us here, the bridegroom still hasn't come. He is delayed. Now, it was customary in those times that, a, that, that, that there would not be a specific time when the bridegroom would show up. In fact, I read that more recently, in, in the past century, uh, the previous century, uh, the, the Palestinian weddings, it was something of, a, of, a, of, a, of almost like a prank for the groom and his party to try to catch the bridal party unprepared, uh, sleeping even. I don't know if that's what we're getting at here, but I read that and I thought that was interesting and, and somewhat of a parallel. It would be foolish to expect the groom to show up so soon, so shortly, so quickly. It was customary that it would take a long time. It was customary for there to be a delay. And so the bride, uh, sorry, so the virgins continue to wait. But as the night drags on, the excitement kind of fades. They're getting bored. They're getting tired. And they all fall asleep, still waiting for the bridegroom. Scene three, verse number six. At midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Suddenly, the stillness of the night is broken with the cry that the bridegroom has come. We're announcing the bridegroom. Quickly, the women wake up. They begin to gather their things together, most importantly, getting that lamp ready. And they begin to light their lamps. But notice in verse number 8, the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now it's a little unclear, at least to me, whether or not they brought no oil at all, as would seem to indicate in the earlier verse that says they brought no oil, or if they didn't bring enough oil because later on it says our lamps are going out. Either way, it's the same result. They can't light their lamps. They can't do that one thing that needed to be done so that they could go to the wedding feast. But the wise ones that had brought the oil say, there's not enough that we can share with you. If we give you any of ours, we won't have enough. So instead, you need to go and find it yourself. Go back into the town at midnight and find a 24-hour convenience store, the ancient version of the Palestinian 7-Eleven, that also happens to sell lamp oil, and get it for yourself. Hurry up, and make it, maybe you can make it back. But the announcing of the groom is when we find that the one difference between these ladies has a deciding effect on the rest of the story. Scene four. Missing the bridegroom. Verse number ten. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. 
Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. The bridegroom finally came. The long delay is over. The problem is he came while the half were gone looking for oil. But the parade doesn't stop. The wise women go in. They join the party and go into the house, celebrate and feast with the bride and his, or the bridegroom and his bride. But the story, notice, does not move us into the house. It stays outside on the streets. It's quiet now. It's dark because those with lamps have gone inside. There's no more shouting. There's no more commotion. It's a quiet night. And here, the women return. They've missed the bridegroom. They return to the house. And they find that the door is shut. There's something final about that little phrase. Shut, the do- or the door was shut. Something final about that. An open door is inviting, right? Sometimes even businesses will call themselves open door something or other. We don't call it closed door because that's not as, doesn't have the same effect on us. An open door means come on in. An open door means there's room for you. There's still some room inside. A closed door means we're full. You may not come in. There's something exclusive about that. To show up and find the door shut means you're too late. Very similar to the ark in Noah's day. God shut the door. He shut them in, meaning no one else is coming inside. It's too late now. If you're not in by now, it's not going to happen. A shut door means you've come too late. Scene five, the final scene. This is what we're getting up to. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. These women who had been waiting all night long are still outside waiting, but now pleading to be let in, I presumably with the bridegroom himself, Lord, Lord, open to us. We want to come in. We want to be here. I find it interesting that we're never actually told if they came back with oil or not. Did they find any oil at midnight? Or maybe they thought, you know what, if the bridegroom's at the house, I guess we don't need our lamps anymore. Maybe we can just come on in. Maybe he'll make an exception. But either way, the result is the same. I don't know you. Which implies they're not getting in. He even adds extra emphasis to that with the word truly. This is actually the word amen. Amen. I say, I don't know you. It adds a solemnity. It adds an extra emphasis. Not simply, I don't know who you are. I declare to you solemnly, I don't know you. You're not getting in. And notice that it's not because they lack desire. It's not because the house is too full. For if they'd had the lamp, they would have gotten in. 
It's not because they didn't know the bridegroom, because they seemed to profess some knowledge of him. It's because he does not know them. It's because they simply were not prepared. And their lack of preparation is only evident once it was too late. The foolish virgins had waited all night long, but they were never ready for the event that they had been waiting for. So then Jesus summarizes what he wants the disciples to learn from this in verse number 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's very similar to what he had said at the end of chapter 24 in one of the other parables when he says essentially the same thing. Stay awake. You must watch. Why? Because you don't know the day or the hour. You need to watch because you don't know when. You need to watch because you won't expect it. You need to watch because you only get one chance and you must be ready. To watch means to be prepared. It means to stay awake. It means to be faithful and obedient. It means to wait wisely during the delay. So let me ask you. Same question that we've been asking the last few weeks. Are you ready? You're waiting whether you know it or not. Whether you want to or not, you're waiting. But are you ready? Are you ready for the bridegroom to come? Now, it's easy to assume that everybody, especially everybody in here, in a church service, by all, of all places, is ready for the bridegroom. But it made no difference in the story that the foolish virgins were with the wise virgins, for they had no oil. And they didn't get in because they had no oil. Being known by the church is not enough. You can have your name on the church's membership roll here or there or any of the churches in the world or all of them, and that's not going to be enough. Now, I think church membership is important. I think you ought to belong to a church. But that is not going to get you into the wedding feast. I think it's important that we have close relationships with one another and know each other, which is why we make a case for a local church membership, not just a we have a big body of believers and we all see each other once every six years or so. We know each other. But being known, I know you, and I think most of us know everybody else in here, but that in itself is not enough. What made the difference in the parable is what makes the difference for us. Does the bridegroom know you? Richard France summarizes, he calls this parable a warning addressed specifically to those inside the professing church. This is not necessarily a warning for those outside who make no pretense about belonging. The people that are outside, that, that don't profess to know Christ, that don't care, they, don't, they would say, I'm not waiting. I don't believe that. That's religious nonsense, whatever. This warning is not for them, although it will apply one day. 
The warning is for those of us who week after week come and sit in the pew. Are you ready? What a shame it would be to come week after week and sit and hear the gospel and wait and not be ready. To be unprepared. Don't assume that being at church means you're ready. Each lamp must have its own oil, and there is no borrowing. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Don't just assume. Don't just go, well, my parents bring me to church, so I'm a Christian too. I've been coming to this church since I can remember, so I'm a Christian too. I read the Bible. I sang the songs. I really like the preaching. So I must be a Christian too. It's not how it works. You profess faith. Do you believe it? Do you truly believe the things that you are professing? Romans 10 says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Those who simply profess but don't believe, they will miss the party. It's a scary thought that many of the people that were left outside looked just like the rest. As I said, it's a warning to those of us then inside. The book of Hebrews tells us about a large group of Israel, the people of Israel who delivered from Egypt, just like everyone else. They ate the manna that fell on the ground, just like everyone else. They drank the water from the rock, just like everyone else. They heard the good news, just like everyone else. But they failed to enter the promised land because of disobedience. Because Hebrews 4 says they were not united by faith. They profess faith. They did not possess faith. How about you? You claim to know Christ. But would Christ claim to know you? You say, well... That, that, that doesn't make any sense. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. We read this uh, this morning in Sunday school. We, we, we see it many times, and it's a, a very somber warning. Jesus himself said, On that day, many will say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they profess to know him. They profess to have done things in his name. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Certainly you know us. And Jesus said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now wait a minute. After all the things that these people did, in the name of Jesus, he's going to turn around and say, I never knew you? This is exactly what's going to happen for many on that day. Many who sat in a church service week after week, year after year. They held the Bible in their lap. 
They said amen to the prayers. They sang the songs. They may have even served in some sort of ministry. They may have taught a Sunday school class. They may have even stood in a pulpit and delivered the words of God. But it's not what you do that gets you into the kingdom. It's if he knows you. Being with the crowd doesn't mean you're going to get into the party. If faith is something that you only talk about but don't have, you have a lamp with no oil. So what should you do? Well, if you sit and realize this morning, I'm not ready. I, I, I guess that's me. I, I, I mean, I think I'm one of those people. It's just never, it never dawned on me. That it never, I never really thought about it. I just, I just kind of go through the motions. What, what, what I do? Well, it's easier than what these women did. You don't have to run out to a city and find something to buy. You don't have to make a long trek and journey to find some elusive object. You simply turn to the only one who can help you, and that is the bridegroom himself. Turn to Christ. Because this Christ said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's for those who realize, I know I'm not. But what about the rest of us? Because here's what I find with a lot of us. And this is where you made me really nervous, Tim, when you're talking about assurance of faith, because this really, I think, has a huge application for those of us who have heard these things and we, we believe these things and we want, we want to make sure we've got it right. There are a lot of Christians, far too many Christians, who struggle with having an assurance of being saved, an assurance of their faith. We struggle because we wonder if we did enough. I used to feel the same way. Did I say it the right way? Did I pray the prayer with my eyes closed tight enough? Did I truly mean it with all of my heart? Did I miss something along the way because I don't want to get this wrong one day? I don't want to find out that I've been going all along thinking I was okay and in the very end find out, no, you missed it. And I know that many of you either currently struggle with that or have struggled with that in the past. What do, what do these words do for us? I find it very comforting, actually, that it doesn't matter who I know or what I know or what I did or, or, or what I got. It matters who knows me. 2 Timothy 2.19 says that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. What about if my children are going to, I don't know, they're, they're not living the way that they're supposed to anymore and the way that we taught them. And, and what's going to happen? On a, the Lord knows who are His. What about my spouse? Or what about myself? What if I fall into sin? The Lord knows who are His. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I don't lose my sheep. I know every single one of my sheep. So you can put all of your confidence and all of your trust in the fact that the Lord knows who are His. 
and that he does not lose one sheep. Stop putting trust in what you've done. Stop putting confidence in what you think, what you feel, a prayer you prayed, the time you were baptized, the feeling you got at that critical point in your life. Those can be good things and helpful things. Those are not solid foundations upon which to build an assurance of faith. The only foundation is the promise of God. The promise of God that says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. The promise of God that says, I know whom I've chosen. I know who are mine. I will not lose you. Believing the promise. If you've come to Christ repenting, believing the gospel, then you can rest in the promise. You can find comfort in the promise that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How do I know if I have enough oil? How do I know if I really meant it? How do I know for sure? You've got to trust that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus made it very simple and clear here. All that it took to come to this wedding feast was a lamp and some oil. Anybody who had it could come. All ten women knew this. They had ample time to prepare, but not everyone who waited was ready. Not all who wanted to come were ready. Some entered into the joy of the wedding feast, and some were left outside. As we wait for the coming of Christ, be sure you are waiting wisely, that you are believing the gospel, that you are resting in the promise. Make sure you have the oil, the necessary oil. Be ready with the faith that is required to enter the kingdom. Be sure your faith is not simply something you profess, which you should do, but it's first something that you possess yourself. Because when the bridegroom comes, you don't want to be standing outside. Let's pray. Our Father, we consider some very serious and sobering words this morning. We thank you that we've had them for us and they are given to us for our benefit. We even thank you that at the moment of reading this, because you've still not returned, there is time. There is space for repentance. There is time to prepare. And even as some of us struggle from day to day with wondering if we truly are prepared. Or there's a promise that you know. You know who you're bringing. You know who you're coming to get. 
We can rest in that. We can read an entire Bible from you that teaches us what it is that you are planning to do, what it is that you have already done, and the promises that you've made to us. And we simply trust, believe them. Help us, though. Sometimes, as the man told Jesus, we struggle with unbelief. We struggle with sin. We struggle with doubts. Lord, you gave us these promises not so that we would struggle with them, not so that we would doubt them, so that we would believe them and have confidence in them. But you've also given us these words so that we might know beforehand. so that we may be ready. So help us to be ready. Lord, I pray that for anyone in the room that truly is yours, that you know them, I pray that they would have an assurance, a strong confidence, an anchor of the soul, firmly rooted in Christ and his promise. And anyone else who is not ready, For whatever reason, may they not be fooled by some things that they've been doing this whole time. May they not be deceived by the lies that are are constantly being given to us. May they truly see their need to turn to Christ, to be saved, to be welcomed in by grace. Father, help us. Minister to us, Spirit, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.